Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Realm presents Book Burners, Season 3, Episode 5. One. When the dreams came, a few things were always constant. The angel was always present, of course. It walked in the body of a boy men she once knew, mottled from face to fingertips with blood. The dreams always brought back the cries of the boy's parents as they watched their son lovingly tear away their skin in thin, precise strips. The dreams forced Manchu to relive the way the cobbles of the market square ran with streams and rivers of blood, deep and wine-dark in the rising sun. God help them all, it had been beautiful in its way. Then came the emptiness. Enduring the silence left in the angel's wake, surrounded by the bodies of everyone he'd loved and everyone he'd failed, was worse, even, than the sounds of their suffering had been. Their dying hours were spent begging for their lives, but their silence afterwards spoke of blame. When she had sat in the pools of blood all that first day, listening to the unspeaking dead, and for a time it seemed he would never move again. But the flies had gathered and the carrion birds. He stirred to perform the one service he owed them. He gave his flock their last rites, every soul. He also laid to rest the spirits of the soldiers and rebels who had perished here, forgiving them might one day light the way to forgiving himself. It was a start. Dusk, he began to dig a grave for them all in a fallow field nearby. He worked for hours without rest until the skin of his palms was shredded and his muscles ached as much as his heart. The dead must be buried. He was still digging when Father Hunter arrived. Those dreams were the worst, the ones where Manchu dug endless graves, where there was nothing left for him but grief and guilt. That and the memory of pale, inhuman eyes watching, judging, mocking. Manchu woke, shivering, his face wet. There was no light from his window. It was painfully early. He rose anyway and splashed water into his eyes and on his cheeks, then leaned heavily on the edge of the basin. Anna's voice whispered in his ear in his imagination, not so far in the past as it had been. Put your team together. 
You're going to want them for what's coming. And she knelt on the tile floor and prayed for guidance. An envelope waited for him at the archives, centered neatly on his desk. The paper was thick and, of course, black for dramatic effect. The looping silver ink gleamed faintly in the artificial light. Not that this particular envelope needed to be addressed at all. Then she wondered, not for the first time, how it had arrived in his office. His usual mail was delivered to a box in a bland office in another building. If he asked, the Swiss guard posted outside the door would insist that nobody had come in or out. Likely, nobody had. It was a stroke of good fortune that the maitress was, if not a staunch ally, at least not a staunch enemy. Manchu pinched the bridge of his nose. Now, with his head still full of nightmares and their resources stretched too thin, it was not the best time for reminders of all the places where he and his team were powerless. Under the circumstances, the idea of walking into a marketplace full of supernatural phenomena and needing to maintain some cordial degree of diplomacy was actively repugnant, and not mere cowardice. He was rattled, and that would affect his ability to play the required role. If Liam came to him in this state, or if Sal did, he knew what he would tell them. Stay home, someone else can go. He weighed the envelope in his hands. Stay home, Arturo, he said aloud. Someone else can go. There was a swish of fabric, and Asante was at his desk. Her brows drew together. Were you speaking to me? No. What are you doing here? She asked. It's early. He looked at his watch. I could ask the same of you, he said. Am I not allowed to be here? Then she regretted the words as soon as they left his mouth. They were beneath him. And yet, he couldn't stop himself lately. For a breath, he hoped that Asante would make up for his shortcomings. Not so long ago, he would have relied upon her to do so. Instead, her lips tightened. Before she could frame a response, he pushed the envelope across the desk toward her by way of apology. Is this season, he said. I'm sure you and the maitress have some catching up to do, so you should go this year, Asante. Perhaps you and Francis? You'd get more out of it than anyone else. Asante picked up the invitation. I'd already begun to make the arrangements. When she quirked an eyebrow at that, his was the name on the invitation, not hers. But this time he kept his tongue in check. There was a looming absence between them, only detectable because once, not so long ago, something had been there. He missed it. When she went outside to eat his lunch, hoping that a warm breeze and some sunshine would improve his outlook and erase the last lingering traces of dreaming. But the day had shown him as many horrors as night over the years, and his brain unhelpfully painted those images over the faces of people around him. He returned unrefreshed to find Cardinal Fox sitting at his desk, waiting with Asante hovering over him, all but wringing her hands with dismay. Sal and Francis waited behind her, heads bowed and hands folded like children who had been given a good scolding. The cardinal cleared his throat. Busy, are you? Manchu inclined his head politely. I was taking some fresh air, he said. Is there some particular uh, business that brought you all the way down here? He eyed the faces of his team, looking for some clue. Sal only grimaced. I like to keep an eye on the ground situation. I see you've received your annual invitation to the Market Arcanum. The cardinal tapped the black envelope on Manchu's desk. It still hadn't been opened. I had thought of Santi, no, the cardinal said. 
He leaned forward and steepled his fingers on the desk. Asante is no longer permitted to do any field work. I'm in the room, Asante pointed out. Any field work, the cardinal pressed on as if the archivist hadn't spoken. Fox took stock of Menchu and couldn't possibly miss his gray face and haggard disposition. Menchu, you need more recovery time. Sal will go, he decided, and Liam. Liam is still wounded, Menchu said, he shouldn't travel. He steeled himself to volunteer in Liam's place. If the job required it, then so be it. He would find it in himself to get through the market, bad dreams or not. The cardinal's brow furrowed as if he could read Menchu's mind. You should stay, in case something urgent comes up. Sal should go. I'll send someone from team one for backup. Grace will do. Fox stood up and began to make his way toward the stairs going up. The ruins of team three stood arrayed around Menchu's desk, blinking at one another. At least there won't be a clock on this one, since it's not a real mission, Sal offered. No, Asante said slowly, not a clock, but there is a mission. Asante led Sal and Menchu to a series of shelves pressed against one of the walls of the archives, talking all the while. Last year at the market, I made a deal with a young scion of a very powerful Swedish family. The contract is coming due this year, and I thought I'd be able to handle it without troubling anyone else. It's a simple enough matter. She climbed a wheeled ladder up to a high shelf and brought down a small ebony box, fine-grained and inlaid with a mother-of-pearl chessboard on the lid. When were you planning on telling me? Menchu asked. Asante pushed her shoulders back and pasted a grim smile on her face. Here, she said, handing Sal the little wooden box. This is all you need to finish the trade. What are you giving up, Asante? Menchu plucked the box from Sal's hands and opened it. Chess pieces? A king and queen nestled in beds of velvet inside the box. They were charmingly carved from ivory and inset with tiny, twinkling jewels. What do they do? Sal asked, all caution. Nothing, Asante answered. The gentleman we're doing business with is a collector, and this completes a set he spun after. They once belonged to Lewis Carroll. Not magic? Menchu asked. Not magic. Asante glanced at him sidelong. I've tested them thoroughly, with an abundance of caution. They are no more magical than beanie babies or baseball cards. They're really only valuable because someone wants them. What are we getting in return? Sal asked. A book? The Sexton's Codex. It was in the library of the King of Sweden, but vanished during the Thirty Years' War. I heard word that a family had recovered it during renovations just before the market last year. Fortunately, they're old enough and knowledgeable enough not to do anything impulsive with it. Sal picked up a chess piece and examined it closely. Why haven't we just taken the book from them? It's not like we've had weeks and months of sitting on our hands wishing for more ways to fill the empty hours, Francis said, her voice dry. Asante hesitated. The brute force isn't always the right answer, she said. Team two does more of this than we do, but this was a particularly delicate situation. The family can be prickly, and I'm not quite sure they know what their little Pavel is up to. Discretion is of the essence. What she means, Manchu said, is that if we tried to take the book away from him, we would anger the family. And should it come to a flat-out brawl with them, it's not clear we'd be the last one standing. I said what I meant, Arturo. Asante's voice was tired. 
Sal looked from Masanti to Manchu, wondering if she should make some sort of joke to break the tension. Or maybe it would just make everything that much more awkward. At least she'd be getting away from it all for a few days. We can imagine many potential futures. Some serve as inspiration, others, warnings. Wondery offers one possibility of the future in their new show, The Last City. The year is 2072, and the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geo-engineered paradise that protects fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. Demetria Lopez heads up Pura's public relations, tirelessly promoting the city's idyllic image. But when she stumbles upon a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. You may not be on an elite team of investigators fighting the dangers of magic, but that doesn't mean you have to be defenseless when it comes to protecting your data online. Lucky for you, our partners at NordVPN know their way around the World Wide Web. VPN stands for Virtual Private Network, which creates a sort of encrypted tunnel while you're online, protecting your private data like bank details and passwords so you can browse safely wherever you are in the world. In addition to providing you with a high level of security online, my favorite use of NordVPN is to virtually switch my location so I can watch movies and shows that aren't currently available in my area. Plus, that way I can still access my favorite content when I'm traveling as well. I'm a fan of pretty much any British TV show, but they aren't always available in the US, so with NordVPN, I can virtually travel across the pond to enjoy my telly. NordVPN is also the fastest VPN in the world, and you can get all that speed, protection, and virtual locations for the price of just a coffee a month. To get the best discount off your NordVPN plan, go to nordvpn.com bookburners. Our link will also give you four extra months on the two-year plan. There's no risk with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. Two. It was intolerable, inexcusable. There was no way that Grace was going to the black market. Not now and not ever. She blew past the cardinal's assistant and entered Fox's office as if her hair were on fire. Sal trailed distantly behind her. I can't do this, Grace said. Her voice was halfway between defiant and imploring, but her shoulders were back and her feet planted wide. There's nothing at the market for me to do. This is ridiculous. I tried to explain. Sal apologized to Cardinal Fox. The cardinal put down the memo he'd been reading. Those are your orders, Fox told Grace mildly. You're a soldier now. You're my soldier, and you'll go where I tell you. Three days? Grace shook her head, plus travel. And not a whiff of a fight anywhere. There's no need for me to do this. If it has to be team one, send someone who's going to lose three days of their life no matter what. I should only be used when something dangerous is going on. I'm the one who decides when and where you should be used. Fox made air quotes. Grace, out of all of us, you know team three best. You've worked with them for years. 
Unless you and Sal have some personal conflict I'm not aware of, then you're absolutely the best person for the job. Grace glared in Sal's direction. I need a minute with the Cardinal. Sal studied Grace for a moment, then nodded. Make it fast, the train leaves in less than an hour. Grace rounded on Fox as soon as Sal closed the door. This isn't fair. I didn't transfer to team one so that she could throw me back in with team three at every possible opportunity. I had reasons for switching. Fox's expression remained bland. I gave you a job. This is a part of your job. If you don't like it, you're always free to leave the society and strike out on your own. Grace twitched at that, but didn't reply. Cardinal Fox picked up his memo again. You should really get going, he said mildly. I hear you have a train to catch. The market arcanum had changed since Sal's first and last visit. Some things were the same, of course. The imposing historic manor, for one, with its sweeping gravel driveway and courtyard full of magicians, dabblers, ancient creatures, and new seekers of knowledge. There were numerous cliques, present to see and be seen at such an exclusive venue just as much as to conduct any business. Sal thought a few faces even looked familiar from her first visit. And, of course, she recognized the maitress, their regal and seemingly ageless hostess. She bowed her head toward Sal by way of greeting, but there was no more acknowledgement that they knew each other, much less that she owed Sal a favor. And the groups felt a bit like a who's who of enemies and allies she'd made over the past few years. She saw a gremlin leap into the crowd to avoid her. She'd seen one of its kind at an academic conference gone terribly wrong last year. The woman threading her way toward the gremlin could have been Aisha, the Canadian magician who had stopped a century-old curse. There were any number of well-dressed aristocrats reminding her of Mr. Norris. For a second, Sal thought she even glimpsed one of the members of Team Four, but the man vanished into the throng before she could be sure. And there was fresh blood here as well, an old woman with leathery skin and a kente head wrap that writhed in upsettingly non-Euclidean angles, a trio of fat, swarthy men dressed in feathers. Along one wall, a cluster of young people in black lace and dark lipstick. They couldn't have been out of their 20s, magic or not. And if Sal had seen them on the streets of New York, she would have pegged them as being a little too fond of vampire novels. One young man with bone-white bleached hair eyed her across the room and bent to whisper something to his companions. They giggled and turned away. But the most pressing new trait of the market was the press of it. When Sal had first come, there had been space to breathe and mingle. Groups had kept a comfortable distance from one another. Not now. The crush was almost intolerable. Grace bent her head toward Sal. Was it always this crowded? No. Sal rubbed at the silver cross around her neck absently. Nah, by a mile. Grace frowned. Rising tide. The market has more customers than it used to as magic gets stronger. She moved on the balls of her feet, ready to spring into violence at any moment. Sal laid two fingers on her arm. Relax, it's safe enough here. The matress doesn't let anything happen on her watch. I'm relaxed, Grace said, even as she turned so she could keep tabs on the whole assembly at once. How will we know who we're looking for? We ask around? Sal searched for a friendly face, or a not hostile one. The problem was solved for them. A voice boomed loud over the whispering courtyard. Bug burners. Heads turned their way. The whispers grew more intense, fueled by fresh gossip. The voice's owner made his way over to them. 
The Swede was blonde and tan, lanky, and dressed in a t-shirt and jeans that somehow seemed more expensive than any custom-tailored suit could have been. He wore mirrored sunglasses in the dusk. Sal thought he looked like nothing so much as the kind of douchebag who called himself a club promoter but actually lived off the kindness of a series of short-lived girlfriends. He had an entourage, a few fashionable youths like himself, mostly hanging back, a graying woman with a sensible haircut and a skirt suit who looked like she could have walked out of an accounting office. And then there was the bear, ten feet tall with claws as long as Sal's face and a thick pelt matted with food. It wore a bright red collar and leash, though the lead hung loose. Or maybe not a bear? Sal's head ached as she squinted to try to focus better. The icy cross around her neck showed her a truer vision of the thing, a heap of stinking furs pinned together with knives. The empty space inside it buzzed faintly as if it were filled with bees. Her finger strayed toward her gun, strapped tight in its holster. Not the bullets would be very effective. The thing was probably a homunculus or something like it, a magical construct that operated as if it were alive and to an ordinary onlooker was indistinguishable from the real thing. She could see the bear and the not bear at the same time, but by now the ache in her temples was familiar. She wondered how the maitress felt about a bear traipsing around the premises. It didn't seem like something she'd ordinarily have tolerated. Your Asante servants, the Swede asked abrupt. He spoke with the up and down sing-song of Scandinavia, so he sounded less menacing than he might have intended. Grace pushed Sal behind her and glowered. And you are? The Swede raised an eyebrow. Feisty, are you? He circled around her, eyeing her with tremendous interest. Mmm, quite the interesting specimen. You don't see something like that every day. He turned to Sal. How much for her? What? Sal half shook her head, certain she'd heard wrong. I'm not for sale. Grace's voice was flat and dry. You think you're not, said the Swede. But everything is negotiable once the price gets high enough. She's not for sale, Sal repeated. You must be Povel. Santi sent us to finish your business. He held up his hands in a pretense of being offended. Oh, come now, don't be too hasty. We hardly know one another. How can we conduct business together? Drink with me first. We have vodka, we have aquavit. Sal shook her head. We're not here to party. Pavel sighed with showy disappointment, though his accountant's lips quirked to the side in a half smile. Book burners, all matches and no fun. The only thing you care about is the book, though I may still get a better offer. I should really spend some time mingling to see. Don't you and Asante have a contract? You warned me. The first night of the market is not for completing business, it's for friendship. His youthful companions sniggered in their hands, well accustomed to this game. If you don't hand over the book, Grace said, we'd be happy to get it from you with our usual methods. Threats? Povell pressed his palm to his chest in exaggerated horror. Behind him, the bear stood up on its hind legs. It was easily a dozen feet tall. Whatever would the maitress think if she hurt you? Povell looked around in a show of agony that could have been rehearsed. As if on cue, the maitress arrived at Sal's side. Or perhaps she had been there all along. She steered Sal away by an elbow. Walk with me, she said. She guided them away from the crowd and into the empty garden. It was thick with roses or the shadows of them. There were no lights here and the June air clung to Sal, moist and heavy.
They followed a path of pale cobblestones beneath yew trees, trained into an arch. There was a little clearing rounded by hedges, with a fountain in the center. Beside it was a stone bench carved in marble. The maitress sat upon it, leaving Sal and Gray standing. You must understand, the maitress said. I have nothing but gratitude for your helping me during a difficult situation. She turned her face to the stars, examining them impassively. I sense a butt coming up, Sal said. You and me both, Grace murmured. The fountain chuckled to itself. Sal resisted the urge to stare at the statue at its apex. In the absence of artificial light, she couldn't see its shape clearly, but she couldn't shake the idea that the thing was shifting its weight or making faces every time she turned away from it. You have done me a favor, the matress said, but that does not mean that you can demand repayment. That debt has been settled. No matter how fondly I look upon you, the rules of the market arcanum are the same for everyone. Do not think I will support you in a dispute with any of my other guests. We weren't trying to pick a fight, Grace said, but we aren't going to let anyone take advantage of us either. The matress sighed. Nonetheless. She turned to them, and this time she was young and radiantly beautiful. She gave an impish smile. We might still be friends said the maiden, just not during the market. You understand, don't you? Sal nodded slowly. Of course, she said. Thank you, the matress said. And then she was her ageless self again. She rose and glided away. Grace and Sal stayed in the garden a while longer, breathing in the heady June scents and companionable silence. It's gonna be a long weekend, isn't it? Sal asked at last. Longer than most. And then Sal realized one more reason why the market felt so different this time. It wasn't just the newcomers. The market had been full of wild characters before, too. But there was something missing. The network. There hadn't been a sign of a techno-cultist anywhere in the place. She felt a pang, something between regret and victory. She'd have to call her brother soon and tell him she missed him. Of course, the network had never been the only dangerous game in town. Sal and Grace would have to be on their guard, just like always. Three. Manchu prayed as he walked the streets of Rome. He sought out crowds to lose himself in. At other times, he had found the divine in quiet and open places, but just now, they reminded him of secrets and of death instead. Majesty was not a quality solely belonging to goodness. Better to be here, among the press of humanity, the tang of sweat and the rumbling, crashing voices. If nothing else, it reminded him that he was not alone. It reminded him that he had a purpose. He slipped around a stroller between Hail Marys. He paused and let a Vespa pass in front of him with the Our Father on his lips, though unvoiced. This was what he lived and fought for, the lovers lolling at the edge of a fountain sharing a gelato, the lone photographer goggling at a stone pine, the flocks of jugglers in the square doing their utmost to dazzle passing tourists out of their foreign money. A family flagged Menchu down, mother, father, son. Photo? The mother asked, handing him her smartphone. 
They waited for him in a well-studied pose, their hands reaching as if to drink from an otherwise unremarkable street fountain. Then she raised the phone and took the shot. And for a moment, the son's eyes flashed pale. Manchu's lungs could not bring in more air. No, no, it, it was not Hana. Just a passing reflection from the flash. The boy looked not unlike the angel child from Guatemala, but his eyes were brown. And if that long ago boy were still alive, Manchu reflected, he would have been the father now, not the son. The family collected their phone from Menchu cooing over the photo. Menchu allowed himself to be pushed onward in the crowd before they could even complete their effusive thanks. Hana. Since San Lupino, she'd become a cage for the mind. Everywhere he looked, he thought he heard a sharp voice or saw her deadly eyes. If she was a demon, and he had no reason to believe she was anything else, then perhaps she could inhabit any body in any place. She could be watching him now. She could have been watching him for years. Menchu shook his head. The pain was useful, but only to a point. He had to ignore the pain now to think through his memories. He did not need to work out what Hana was. That was irrelevant in anything except a purely academic sense, or perhaps a theological one. No, he had to work out what she was up to and why. Why him? Why then and why now? What was he meant to do? Was there even a purpose to his torment, or was he a mere plaything? The afternoon was hot. He wiped his forehead, his chin. He let the flow of people guide his steps. He tried to fix his head on the important facts of the situation. He was alive, and he had the power to protect the lives of others. What did Hana want? He rolled her long ago words around in his head. Let this be a lesson to you. He had concluded that this was a barb about hubris, but travel agent Hana had seemed to think there was another moral there for him. He touched fingers to his rosary and began another round of Hail Marys. If he could see through the pain, maybe he could decipher what all of this meant. Surely it meant something. It had to. It had to. Grace watched over Sal as she slept. Her hands were curled into fists, one knee kicked out of the blanket, as if she were ready to flee at any moment. Grace could be sleeping too, but her candle burned whether she was awake or not, and it seemed a waste to spend even more time with her eyes closed than she needed to. Instead, she read by moonlight, or she tried to. It was harder than ever for her to concentrate and drown out the chaos of everything she thought and felt. There was a rustle from the curtains. Grace crossed to make sure the window was tightly shut. It was, just as she'd left it. When she inspected the street below, there was nothing to be found, just pools of lamplight on cobbles and the swift passage of clouds over the face of the moon. She stayed for a while, watchful, but nothing stirred. She returned to her book, or at least to watching her friend and colleague sleep. Sal hadn't put Grace on the spot yet, but even during her waking hours, they weren't speaking. Not about the market arcanum and the nonsense mission that Sal could have done alone. Not about why Grace had transferred to Team One. Not that Fox seemed to have noticed, given how often she wound up back with her old team. Not about how Grace had thrown herself into the mouth of a sea serpent. Sal wanted to talk about it very badly, 
She was all expectant pauses and searching gazes, providing a place for Grace to volunteer information without Sal having to ask outright. That was too bad. Sal was simply gonna have to suffer her curiosity. Grace heard a scratching from the walls and tensed again. It couldn't be the wind in the trees. The ones lining the avenue were set far from the building. They couldn't have reached the walls short of being uprooted by a tornado. Mice, perhaps? Though she wouldn't have thought that the maitress would allow her guests to suffer from such an unhygienic state of affairs, off-premises or no. Certainly, Grace hadn't seen any signs of vermin in their otherwise spotless bed and breakfast, not counting the invited attendees of the Market Arcanum. She thought she heard footsteps behind her and whirled. There was nothing to see. She moved anyway, sprinting toward the source of the sound. Her fingers brushed empty air. Sal stirred in bed. What's going on? It's nothing, Grace said, but she wasn't so sure. She stayed alert through the night, book in her lap, waiting for something that never came. Sal marched up to the Swedish contingent bearing the tiny box of chess pieces. Let's get this done, Povell, she said. Not even a hello? No social graces at all. Asante will be shocked when I tell her. Asante already knows what Sal is like, Grace said dryly. Trust me, she won't be shocked. I don't have to give you the book, you know, said the Swede. He buffed his nails on his suede jacket. He's been in my family for generations. Perhaps I've decided that the sentimental attachment is too much, and I, I cannot bear to part with it. The maitress doesn't take kindly to broken deals, Sal said. Povell laughed. The maitress wouldn't do anything to upset my grandfather, believe me. Behind him, the bear yawned. Its teeth were yellow and very long. It's dangerous for you to have the book, Sal said. I'm sure you know that. He looked at her pityingly. And to think all you want to do with such history is burn it. We don't actually burn the books, Sal said. Her shoulders were growing tight. Don't let him get on your nerves, she told herself. Don't know why he's trying to needle you, but he definitely is. Are you ready to finish the deal or not? Povell sighed theatrically. Fine, fine. Let me see the pieces. I'm not certain that I can trust Asante to have found them for me. Or that you won't try to cheat me. Grace tensed again, looming bare or not. Look for yourself. Sal showed the Swede Asante's carefully wrapped bundle. Enjoy it in good health. Hovell sniffed. We'll see. Open it. Sal gritted her teeth and unwrapped the folds of velvet to show him. Hovell bent to look, then pulled the chess pieces out of the box one at a time. He held them up to the moon, admiring them from every possible angle. Can it be? He breathed. I never dreamed that Asante would truly find them. They are exquisite. Well, Grace held out her hand, palm up. Where's the book? The Swede sniffed with distaste, then carefully nestled the chess pieces back into their case. It is in a secure place, he said. I still need to verify the provenance of these pieces and make sure they are not a clever fabrication. He reached to pull the box out of Sal's hands. Sal tightened her grip. Hold up. I'm not gonna let you keep these without- The market went dark. This was no ordinary darkness from loss of power or blown out candles. There were no shadows, no sound, no sense of motion. The moon and stars were snuffed out. 
Even the bright memory of light behind closed eyelids was gone. Sal heard a shriek, but distantly, as if the screamer had been muffled by a dozen quilts. Or perhaps her ears had. Sal tried to move, but either she couldn't, or she couldn't tell she had. She had no sense of where her body was in space. The darkness went on forever. When the world came back, three things had changed. Sal was chest down on the ground, Gray standing over her with ready fists. The bear was howling over a pale and shaken puffle, and the box of chess pieces was gone. The market buzzed with frantic, frightened chatter. What just happened here? Sal asked. Puffle's gray-suited advisor glared at her. We've been robbed, she said. Grace scowled. Are you trying to pull one over on us? We handed the goods over to you, now give us the book. A deal is a deal. You hunted over nothing. Who can say those so-called pieces were anything but a brief illusion? I have no way to know now that they are conveniently gone. The Swede's voice rose to a crescendo of indignation. If you don't get those pieces back for me, the deal is off. I won't be taken advantage of. We all know book burners are thugs and swindlers, but I won't have it. How do I know you didn't just take them? Sal demanded. You were already trying to grab them from me. You could have just stuck them in your man bag or shoved them into the belly of your bear thing friend over there. The Swede drew himself tall. The bear stood to its full height behind him and roared. How dare you, Povell hissed. How dare you insinuate that I would be so dishonorable as to... Grace grinned and bounced on her toes, eyes fixed on the bear. Do you want to play? Fellow market goers around them fell silent for a second time. Sal could practically see their ears grow three sizes. The Swede's accountant, or lawyer, or whoever she was, tapped on his shoulder and whispered in his ear. He shrugged her away. I don't care, he snapped. I don't have to take this insult, no matter what that woman says. The maitress glided over, crackling with rage and unspent power. The blackout had apparently caught her attention. Of course, the book burners. I should have known I'd find you at the heart of this disturbance. We've been robbed, Sal told her. That's against the rules, right? The matress looked at her sharply, then glanced around at the throngs of eager eavesdroppers. As one, the crowd found urgent attention requiring business with their hands and feet. Let's discuss this more privately, she said. Follow me. The Swede began to follow her, the bear lumbering at his heels. The matress flicked him an unamused glance. Come alone, she said, unless you feel I'm somehow a danger to you. She smoothed the black glove along her forearm. Povell pouted. Of course not. He signaled for his bear and his followers to remain where they were and wait for him. The maitress led Povell and the Team 3 delegation to an unoccupied room, a study from the shelves of books lining the walls. Sal wondered if they were magical, not that she could do anything about it if they were. The matress motioned for Sal and Grace to sit on a damask glove seat and directed the Swede to a leather easy chair with a bronze patina. She stood between them, hands folded. Tell me what you're missing. Chess pieces, Sal said. Asante sent them to trade in exchange for a book. The Swede turned on Sal. You are trying to swindle me, he announced. Nothing has been stolen. This is a trick to get out of the deal. Why would we do that? All we want is the book. You're the only one who cares about the damn chess pieces. And you don't get the book if I don't get the pieces, the Swede spat. He crossed his arms and sulked. The matress raised her chin. If any of you would like to confess to something, now is the moment before I tear the truth out of you. 
Hovo glowered. I have no confession to make. The society aren't thieves, Grace said. Her hands were restless. So be it. The matress held up a hand. A pulse of awful sensation pierced Sal as if a searing light tore through every scrap of her being. She winced. She was gratified to see that Povel did too. The matress pursed her lips. Hmm, curious. Neither of you is trying to cheat the other, after all, she said. And the pieces are hmm, not here at the market any longer, or if they are, they've been hidden from me. It looks like there truly is a thief among us, and quite a skilled one. So what are you going to do? Sal asked. Take measures to make sure this can't ever happen again, the matress said. Maintaining the integrity of the market is of utmost importance right now. Grace snorted. Make him give us the book. We held up our part of the bargain. The matress's gaze was level. He doesn't have to give you the book unless he also gets what he bargained for. He never took possession of those chess pieces. So if you still want the book, I suggest you strike a new bargain. Grace and Sal exchanged a glance. Give us time to think it over, Sal said. You are listening to Book Burners. Created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Book Burners is created by Max Gladstone and written by Max Gladstone, Margaret Dunlap, Murr Lafferty, Andrea Phillips, and Brian Francis Slattery. Executive produced by Molly Barton and Julian Yap. Performed by Exe Sands. Audio production by Amanda Rose Smith, with additional editing by Corey Barton. Original theme by Hashem Asadolahi, featuring Jody Redditch Ferber and mixed by Justin Morrell. Cover art by Annie Wu. Executive in charge for Realm, Mary Asadolahi. Find more shows like Book Burners by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm.